Hey there, everyone. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of Wrestling With Film. I'm your host, Bentley. And I'm your host, Will. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing one of the most important and influential rivalries of all time. That's right. We're going to be talking about Bret the Hitman Hart and the Heartbreak Kid, Shawn Michaels. We're going to discuss the origin of their feud, how they got their rise in wrestling, how their rivalry changed the face of wrestling forever. By the end of their storied rivalry, the landscape of wrestling was forever changed. While for the better or for the worse, everything changed after 97 Survivor Series. Stay tuned as we go ahead and look at this important rivalry. Thank you so much, everyone, for sticking with us. So let's go ahead. We're going to jump into perhaps one of the most historic and momentous rivalries in modern wrestling. Sean, the Heartbreak Kid, Michaels versus Brett, the Hitman Hart. We'll go ahead and uh, walk us through this journey of two of the greatest wrestlers of all time and how the drama bled over from the ring to the real life. Before we can even talk about either Sean or Brett's rise to the top, we have to preface by painting a picture of the landscape of the WWF and professional wrestling as a whole during the late 80s and early 90s. It was predominantly centered around who has the biggest muscles, who is the biggest guy, and that's usually who's going to be in the main event slots. Whereas Shawn Michaels could barely crack 220 pounds, where average these guys are minimum 250 and Bret Hart wasn't as small, but was definitely a smaller-sized wrestler compared to these guys like the Macho Man Randy Savage, Hulk Hogan, Greg the Hammer Valentine. Andre the Giant. Andre the Giant is a perfect example. But Bret Hart comes from a long-lasting dynasty of wrestlers. The Hart family has had wrestlers in them just about every generation. Bret had six other siblings... His father, Stu Hart, trained some of the greatest names in wrestling, such as both of the British Bulldogs, Brian Pillman, Jushin Thunder Liger, as well as the Hart's Brett Owen Hart and his brother-in-law and tag partner Jim the Anvil Neidhart. So Brett Hart was definitely poised for greatness just from his family's lineage, and the Hart's were known to have a very high work rate, very technical style. They took the business extremely seriously, as well as booking Stampede Wrestling in Calgary, which is where many of the great Canadian names that we see now, such as Jericho, Bretton Owen Hart, really the entire Hart family is where they got their start. And so Brett wrestled for Stampede from 76 up to 1984, which is when himself and Jim the Anvil Neidhart joined the WWF as the tag team, the Hart Foundation. And while they had some success in the tag division, they could never quite etch themselves to that top spot when they were surrounded by teams like the Road Warriors. But around 1991 is when Bret Hart finally started to really break into his own and get that singles run after he had split off from Neidhart. So what was the motivation for the split, having been such an integral part of each other's lives for so long? So there are some fishy details on it, but a large part of it was that Brett was wanting to move up the card and get that singles push, but it also coincidentally happened when there was some sort of scandal going on that involved Jim Neidhart. So then it just kind of made a bit more sense from a company standpoint to present Brett by himself. And already he did so with a brand new submission finisher that became huge, the sharpshooter submission. Right, and so the sharpshooter for those that don't know, has a little bit of a history in and of itself. I know Bret Hart is often credited as the creator, but that's not the case. A lot of people do accredit him with being the creator because I would say out of anybody in wrestling, he, I guess, made it his own. And if you think of the sharpshooter, you think of Bret Hart. Yeah, and Natalia is doing it right now as well. And it's, it's huge in Canadian wrestling in general. Absolutely. It's definitely kind of a little piece of Canadian pop culture. Yeah. And and for those that don't know, the Sharpshooter, also known as the Scorpion Hold, is a professional wrestling submission hold. We were discussing this earlier as, as a way of like trying to paint a picture. 
It's kind of like a figure four leg lock paired up with a Boston Crab. Essentially. It is a very unique move. I mean, it's a move that was invented as a result of professional wrestling. 100% a move that, I mean, I'm sure it would hurt your legs, but I can't ever see someone in an actual fight being like, ha ha, got you in a sharpshooter. <laughs> I would I would love to see that. Uh, I may hang out with bars and start trying to pick fights. Like, hey, that guy said your mom's fat. And just see, but you go for the sharpshooter. <laughs> so you go for the sharpshooter and I'll go the Bob Backlund route and I'll try to hit the crossface chicken wing on some people and we'll see which works best. Yeah, that's. I think this, I don't see how this could possibly go horribly I wrong I see no for downside. Us. But the uh, move wasn't invented by Bret Hart. Bret Hart was actually taught the move by someone else, which we can jump to in a moment. But it was originally invented by the Japanese wrestler Ricky uh, Chosu. It was popularized by Sting. He does a standing version of it and it's called the Scorpion Deathlock and he, I would say in the US he's the first one to popularize it, but once Bret Hart kind of made it his own and he slightly modified it by once you have the legs locked, he sits down into it to essentially create a little bit more leverage on your legs and your spine. How did this end up becoming Bret Hart's signature move? How did the how did he get a hold of it? Right before before his major singles star push was about to begin, one of the backstage personalities and former wrestling, former Intercontinental Champion, Pat Patterson, pitched the idea of him using the Scorpion Deathlock, but oddly enough, Bret Hart, who was open to trying it out, did not actually know how to perform the move. And so they went around the locker room asking different wrestlers, do you know how to do this? Can you show Bret? And oddly enough, the only one who knew how to do it and taught Bret Hart how to do the sharpshooter was former WWF and WCW wrestler, but mostly known for his AAA run, Conan, who has trained the likes of many, many luchadors. So a guy from the Hart Foundation, trained by legendary Stu Hart, learned his signature move from Conan. Luchador Luchador. from Mexico. (laughs) That's quite an amalgamation of, uh, just of a, histories and just ideas. Just a fun little tidbit that the most iconic pro wrestling move that you think of when you think of Canadian pro wrestling, in reality, A, its roots are from Japan, and B, the origin of how essentially the Canadian hero of that time learned it was this tiny little luchador in the background being like, hey... I can show you. (laughs) But he debuted that in 1991 once he began his singles run and very quickly started to gain traction with the crowds. Everyone was getting behind him. And by SummerSlam of that same year, he had already entered in a feud and defeated Mr. Perfect for the WWF Intercontinental Championship. And after that, he's held the belt, had feuds with the likes of Ric Flair, Rowdy Roddy Piper who beat him for the belt, but he got the rematch and regained his title until he ultimately lost the championship at the next SummerSlam to the British Bulldog, which is a whole story in and of itself. Because apparently, story goes that he came out to the ring messed up on something and that Bret Hart had to carry him through the match and then drop the belt to him. Oh, that's got to leave a bad taste in your mouth. Absolutely. So, so Bret Hart was part of the Hart Foundation, was doing this great tag run, 91, wanted to take the singles route, and then you said within that year became Intercontinental Champion, and then was the WWF Champion? Within a year he went from tag to... Within a year he went from being one of the top tag teams in the company to already becoming one of the major singles stars by holding the Intercontinental Championship, a belt that's been held by the likes of The Macho Man, Ultimate Warrior, Pat Patterson. And then you have to be exceptionally good to to rise above that. And become the WWF champion. And Brett was that. And Brett was that. Brett actually had total, by the end of his career, five WWF championship runs, two Intercontinental, two tag team runs with Jim Neidhart, as well as a really weird United States championship run that happened in the 2000s. We don't talk about that. (laughs) So, during this time, Brett, wheeling and dealing, making a name for himself. Absolutely. And another thing about him is that a lot of the times whenever you were champion, you would only defend against the top names, and it would be somewhat sparingly. Whereas Brett Hart went from the approach of, I want to become the fighting champion. And while he was, uh, when he did win the world titles, he was known for defending not just against top stars, but against mid-carders on the roster, such as the Barbarian. Even Virgil got a shot at the world title against him. At this time, as Brett is catapulting to the top, 
we have Shawn Michaels, who during this 91 era is still part of the Rockers. He's still part of the Rockers, which was his tag team with tag partner Marty Jannetty. So the Rockers had been getting some moderate success, but they they would be putting on good matches, but never quite winning the favor in Vince McMahon's eyes to push them as that top tag team on the same level as, say, the Hart Foundation or the Road Warriors. But they were tagging, but while Bret Hart was beginning his singles run was roughly about when the Rockers' career was wrapping up. Because around 92 is when they had the infamous barbershop interview where it depends on which man you ask. If you ask Marty Jannetty, then Shawn Michaels threw him headfirst through a window and betrayed him to destroy the Rockers and strike out as a single star. If you ask Shawn Michaels, then that coward Marty Jannetty jumped through the window trying to run away from him. <laughs> we'll let you decide. Because truly, there's there's no one way to know one way or the other whether or not Marty Jannetty is truly just a coward. <laughs> This was the time when Shawn Michaels was also moving away from the rocker gimmick. This is when he um, embraced his... his uh, the pretty boy side of his personality. So freshly after turning on Marty Jannetty, he now has the new manager, Sensational Sherry, and he's begun the heartbreak kid persona. Right. Where he's just that heartthrob, he's better than you and you know it. And it was actually the same WrestleMania, WrestleMania 7, where Bret Hart won the Intercontinental Championship back from Rowdy Roddy Piper to begin his second and final run that Shawn Michaels really began to get some momentum under his sails as a single star by defeating Tito Santana, who is also a former Intercontinental Champion. Mm-hmm. He had the gimmick, best in the world. You know, he Shawn Michaels is, is cocky, vain. Very. Uh, very vain. Uh, but he has, could always back it up in the ring. Right. When was he able to do that? Was he just innately gifted? Did he have that ability even when it was the Rockers? Yes. Like, people knew, like, that Shawn Michaels kid, like, he's got it. People knew even during the Rockers run that Shawn Michaels was going to be something, but it was general opinion at the time that Marty Jannetty was actually going to be the breakout star from the Rockers. Really? And Shawn proved everyone wrong so much that now being called the Marty Jannetty of the tag team is almost like a curse. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. That's it's not terribly flattering. <laughs> no, because whereas they broke up, they had their feud, and Shawn went on to become... Shawn Michaels. Shawn Michaels. <laughs> Marty Jannetty just kind of kept slinking down the card and then just eventually faded away into nothing. With the new gimmick, with the Heartbreak Kid... With him having the abilities, having the the skill set, coming off of the WrestleMania eight, you know, championship, what was next for Shawn Michaels? So Shawn Michaels, after there, very quickly actually went the same route as Bret Hart. So coincidentally enough, when Bret Hart lost the Intercontinental Championship for the second time to British Bulldog, the man that beat British Bulldog was Shawn Michaels which then already kind of started to plant some seeds of the rivalry, which then led to their title match at Survivor Series 1993, which was champion versus champion. With only Bret Hart's title on the line, right? Yes, so Bret was the WWF champion. I believe this was his first reign after he had beaten Ric Flair. Shawn Michaels, the somewhat still newly minted Intercontinental Champion, had challenged Bret to a champion versus champion match, but only the WWF title was on the line in which Bret Hart walked out victorious. From that point on is kind of where the seeds started to be planted between their rivalry backstage and in real life. Right. Because they both carried themselves in very different manners as wrestlers and as champions. Yeah, because Shawn Michaels at this point was living it up. And, And I don't remember the exact time that it happened but I remember Shawn Michaels was the rock and roll lifestyle. Yeah, uh, very much. He posed for Playgirl in the non-nude shoot. He had the belt covering up his junk, which was one of the reasons later down the ri- line why Bret Hart hated Shawn Michaels because right. he felt that he disrespected the championship. Because Bret Hart comes from a background that takes professional wrestling extremely seriously it is something to be treated with respect and honor and Shawn michaels is very much the 
Hollywood playboy of wrestling. The goofy, loud guy. Yes. Whose gimmick is almost entirely, I'm just doing it for the ladies. Like, I'm doing it because I look good. Best at it. I get all the girls, and you can't deny it. Yeah, kind of deal. Now, leading up to the Survivor Series 93 match for, for the title, which is one of their big title bouts, in 92, Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart had the first ever ladder match in WWF. They did. It was so it was at a house show. So there's, I'm sure somewhere out there there's footage, but to the general audience, there's not footage of this. But they had a ladder match because the ladder matches somewhat originated in Stampede Wrestling. Bret Hart accredits it to being kind of a Hart family idea. He had one against who was it? Bad News Allen yeah. back in 1983 in Stampede. And so he had pitched this idea, and Shawn Michaels had apparently promised him that he would never do this match type with another wrestler because he didn't want to come off as stealing Brett's idea. And then of the first four wrestling matches. And then the first four televised ladder matches in WWF involve Shawn Michaels and do not involve Bret Hart at all. So, again, that that probably played into the distrust and frustration that Hart had. That, okay, oh, absolutely, because... I brought I, something from, from my father's wrestling league. We're going to do this at this house show, which I think was in, in Maine or something. Yes. You know, this will be great. And then the next three times, which I think one of the times was... The first two were back-to-back Shawn Michaels versus Razor Ramon, also known as Scott Hall, where the first one is an instant classic, Razor Ramon defeating Shawn Michaels to win the Intercontinental Championship at that, WrestleMania 10. Which, and then the next one was them again, Shawn Michaels winning at SummerSlam. So they do it at a house show, at a WWF wrestling challenge or whatever. Yeah. And then Shawn Michaels, after being brought in on this momentous and eventually industry-changing kind of match, brings it to three pay-per-views year after year with Bret Hart never being in another one televised at the very least or or on a pay-per-view on that scale. Yeah. Like, that's got to stink. So on that end, it is understandable why Bret Hart could be a little bit pissed off with Sean, but a large part of it was also around this same time. So the year prior to Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon's WrestleMania 10 ladder match at WrestleMania 9. Which is 93. Yes, in 1993. So Yokozuna, who was, his character was essentially this gigantic Japanese sumo wrestler type of villain, when in reality he's not actually Japanese, he's Samoan. Part of the Samoan family, right? Like, like the Anawi family, yeah. which contains the likes of The Rock, the Uso brothers, Roman Reigns, Rikishi. Rikishi, some of the biggest Samoan names in wrestling. But he had won the Royal Rumble, and so he was to challenge in the main event at WrestleMania, Bret Hart for the WWF Championship. And so around this time, right before WrestleMania, Hulk Hogan had come back to WWF. And his departure was what led to Brett sliding up the card and becoming the WWF champion. Because around then was when they were hit with the massive steroid scandal. So then he was trying to gear away from muscle-bound genetic freaks to slightly smaller-statured, more natural-looking wrestlers. So then here's Brett Hart. He's your champion. But now Hogan is back. And Hogan and his massive ego cannot (laughs) handle being out of the main event scene for too long. So Yokozuna beats Bret Hart for the title. And then immediately after, Hulk Hogan comes out, challenges Yokozuna to a match, beats him immediately, and becomes the new WWF champion, much to Bret Hart's dismay and chagrin. And while the reign actually didn't even last terribly long i believe it was only 70 days long he held the belt from april 4th 1993 and then dropped it back to yokozuna by june 13th of the same year to which yokozuna had a massive monster heel run held the championship for 280 days and yokozuna did eventually lose the belt back to bret hart so he did get his win back and officially slaying the beast known as yokozuna to win his championship back And while it wasn't for long because he immediately began feuding with Bob Backlund as well as carrying on his feud with his brother, Owen Hart, who had recently departed from the Hart Foundation and turned on Brett to try to get out of his brother's shadow. 
So did that play into the overarching story for Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels? Because um, obviously they're building on the previous year. We're getting now into, uh, I believe you said 95 at this point. This is, I believe, 94. 94. So 93, they had the absolutely amazing match at Survivor Series. The next year, they have family versus friends. Obviously, that played into the role for Owen Hart. Brett's having that rivalry. Did this bring Shawn Michaels back into the feud with Bret Hart? In a sense, yes, because Shawn was already in the position of still rising up the card towards his first world title run, which he actually did end up defeating Bret Hart to win his first world title at WrestleMania in an Iron Man match. And so for those that don't know, an Iron Man match is typically a 60-minute long match, sometimes 30 minutes long, in which the match will run until that time, and who Whoever has scored the most pinfalls or submissions by the end wins. And so these two men wrestled for an hour straight, neither of them getting a pinfall until it went into sudden death overtime and spilt a little bit over an hour to which Shawn Michaels finally gets the pinfall and defeats Bret Hart for the belt. And from that point on is really when Bret started to sour on Shawn because one of the main things he didn't like about Shawn is how he carried himself as the champion and as the face of the company because for Hart there's there's prestige there's honor in holding this belt whereas for Sean there's not so much honor as much as this belt just says that I'm the best was that kayfabe was that was that his character was that his gimmick or both oh it was both in life and outside of the ring because Sean knew he was the face of the company, but that definitely fueled his ego Right at the time. This was also shortly around the time when Shawn Michaels and Triple H, Kevin Nash, who was also known as Diesel, and Razor Ramon were all the clique, as they were called, backstage. Which, which was the super powerful group of people that had a lot of pull backstage. Yes. They they kind of, I, I don't want to say shadow organization, mm-hmm. uh, WWE, but they definitely were able to get their guys the push. They were able yes. to get their guys, you know, the attention. And they're the ones that had just the reputation of living that rock and roll lifestyle. Uh, like, absolutely. Well, I mean, Kevin Nash, who, while he was in WWF, was known as Diesel. He had held the world title for a week under the full year mark. Uh, so Bret Hart, whenever he had won the belt back from Yokozuna, very quickly dropped it to Bob Backlund, who then very quickly dropped it to Diesel, who held it for about a year until he dropped it to Bret Hart, which also then plays into the animosity of Shawn Michaels in the clip versus Bret Hart, because during that match was the first time in WWF history that a wrestler had ever been put through a table in, with Bret Hart putting diesel through a table and then ultimately getting the victory right and apparently tempers were very hot backstage afterwards because kevin nash wanted to let bret hart know hey i did you a favor i made you look good out there that really wasn't you i made you look this good i'm the one that took that table spot for you which i would just like to say though that bret hart can't say a single thing about people stealing his ideas when the whole putting diesel through a table spot was him watching ECW, seeing Sabu do his thing and thinking, <laughs> hey, that's cool. I want to do that. <laughs> that in addition to what we covered with the sharpshooter as well, a big part of his personality wasn't something he even came up with. Someone else did it. He had to get trained how to By do it. A- another third party how to do it. Yeah. And in reality, it was kind of a thinly veiled way at stealing some momentum away from Sting, who was over in their number one competitor, WCW. Right. And around this time, so this is 95, 96, Click is rising to power. You have Shawn Michaels living up the lifestyle. You have Bret Hart becoming more and more disenfranchised with it. Does Bret Hart decide to take the move, take the jump over to WCW? Is there a struggle for him internally? So there was very much an internal struggle over Bret Hart because during his last few years... WCW had made several offers to try to get him, but Bret Hart had a lot of loyalty to Vince McMahon and the WWF, so he didn't want to leave, but WCW was offering him more money than WWF could pay. Right. Because that was 
what ultimately led to their success and then immediate downfall was that... Ted Turner's pockets. It was Ted Turner's pockets because <laughs> he can shell out those paychecks that Vince McMahon at the time could not for these wrestlers. And so they're all jumping ship, bringing their star power over to the competitor. So then Vince has to think on his feet and try to create new stars. Right. That was probably the last time he ever did that. <laughs> so... We have this struggle for, for Brett. Yes. We have Sean and Triple H still living it up. There's this open contention between WCW, WWF. This is around the time, I, I believe, WCW was giving the results of WWF matches to spite them as yes. well. You have this huge rivalry going on so that, between the two companies. The match spoiling was actually a little bit... Uh, after a little bit after that, okay. But you have this huge rubber that ends up <laughs> with one of them straight up saying, "Hey, this match goes this way. Stick with us. We just saved you time." Yeah. So you have the two companies fighting. You now have the top of the company, Shawn Michaels. You have Bret Hart still being mad at all the things Shawn Michaels has done. Where does this lead us? So what does what does Bret Hart do at this point? So at this point, Bret, in a weird way, luck kind of favored him. So Shawn Michaels, after defeating Bret Hart in the Iron Man match, has a 231-day long reign with the belt. He loses it to Psycho Sid for a little bit before winning it back a couple of months later, but that reign is cut short after about 25 days when he suffered a knee injury and is forced to vacate the belt and take some time off to heal. So then this time gives Bret Hart the opportunity to sneak back up to the top of the card. And this is around the time that The Undertaker is still being heavily built, but he's established. You have Vader, who was a really big name in Japan and in WCW's over here. And we're starting the buildup of Stone Cold Steve Austin. So we have a fatal four-way match for the vacant belt. That takes place in Chattanooga. Represent 423! A In 1997, where Vader, Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Undertaker, and Bret Hart face off in a four-way elimination match where Bret's the last man standing and becomes the new champion before immediately losing the belt back to Psycho Sid. <laughs> so it didn't quite pan out too well as he would have thought and he was still in the world title scene because both of Sid's reigns were very short because Sid immediately lost it to Undertaker who had a decent length reign before losing it to Bret Hart for his final world title run which then leads us to probably the most infamous point in their rivalry and the most one of the most controversial points in wrestling history the Montreal Screwjob which I know for all of you that are wrestling fans, you've heard about it ad nauseum. Absolutely. So we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about it. We're in a very lucky position where we have people who are hopefully being reintroduced to wrestling or this is their first exposure to it. And we think that this is a very important moment in wrestling history. So we are going to discuss this a little bit. Feel free to skip ahead if you want a little bit. We will do our own little twist on it, discuss a little bit, speculate. But this is a very important moment in the history of wrestling. It, it I would say, fundamentally changed it wrestling. absolutely changed wrestling. So, the Montreal Screwjob, for those of you who don't know, I'm going to kind of do a real quick, here's the nitty gritty. Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart facing each other for the WWF Championship at Survivor Series 1997. Right. Bret Hart's already told Vince McMahon he's going to leave uh, to go to WCW. This is Bret Hart's home turf. He wants to win in his home province, go over, drop the belt the next day, hat on out to WCW. Leading up to this, McMahon... Had a very different plan in mind. Yeah, there was a, he didn't trust him. There was a lot of people that were, were jumping ship. At this point, he didn't think that Brett was actually going to drop it. He thought he was going to leave WWF with the belt. And so he called an audible and s secretly finagled for Bret Hart to lose the match unexpectedly. And depending on who you ask, some people knew, some people didn't knew, didn't know. Uh, you know, Earl Hubner swore in his kid's life that he wasn't going to screw over Bret Hart because Bret Hart felt something was going to happen. Yes. By the end of the match, what ends up happening 
leading up to what was the real climax, Shawn Michaels throws uh, Bret Hart into the sharpshooter. Bret Hart's supposed to get out. Vince McMahon calls for the bell to be rung. Boom. New world champion. New world champion. Game-changing moment in the world of wrestling. It causes ramifications are still being felt today. Oh, yeah. And it changed wrestling. It's something that... It happens back in 97, and people are still talking about it. Everything goes haywire. Brett leaves. Sean has the title. Changes wrestling. Oh, but so much more than that happened right after. Let's take a quick break. We're going to come back, and we're going to jump into this and talk about what happened afterwards. So you heard... The, the quick, dirty, nasty version of the Montreal Screwjob. But let's go ahead. We're going to jump into the details. For those of you that are unfamiliar with it, we're going to talk about the exact details that led up to it, what happened in the match, and then we're going to discuss the long-ranging ramifications of the Screwjob, not only from a narrative standpoint within the WWF, but wrestling as a whole, the battles between WCW WWF, and how we are still feeling the impact of it today. Absolutely. So going into this, Bret Hart was on WWF Championship Reign number five, his final one with the company. And after already relationships had kind of begun to break down between Vince McMahon and Bret Hart, Bret had finally decided, I'm going to take the offer, it's more money, I'm leaving your company and I'm jumping to WCW. And so Vince was very upset about that, but he had told Brett that he could kind of go out on his own terms. He had said that he wanted him to drop the world title to Shawn Michaels to help kind of like solidify Michaels as the next big star of the company. Which seems like a bit of a dick move, honestly, because I'm assuming McMahon knew. Oh, absolutely. Everybody knew. Yeah. Everybody knew how much they hated each other because they were always going at it. Yeah. And so Brett straight up refused, saying he had no respect for Sean as a worker, and he refused to drop the title to him. And so what Brett Hart said he wanted to do, since they're already locked into doing Brett Hart versus Shawn Michaels at Survivor Series, was Brett would beat him, retain, and then the next night on Monday Night Raw come out, announce that he's leaving the company, and vacate the belt. Vince McMahon had other ideas. <laughs> so Vince and the writers had been basically locked in a room trying to scheme up a way to do this and how to get the belt off of heart, to which someone pitched the idea of what if we have a screwy finish, Shawn Michaels hits Brett's own finisher on him, this the sharpshooter, and then Brett will tap out to that. Well, they knew Brett Hart wouldn't agree to that, so then they came up with the idea of, well, let's do that, and then just have the ref ring the bell, award the belt to Sean. Surely it'll be fine. <laughs> no, nothing was fine. Yeah, and the ref for that match is wrestling legend Earl, Earl Hebner. And Hart and Hebner had a great relationship. Yes. And Hebner straight up swore on his kid's life that he wasn't going to be privy to any of this stuff. The day of. Got very much pressured into it at the last second by Vince. So he agrees. But before he, before anyone is even out there for that match, Earl Hebner has a car waiting for him in the parking lot. Because he knew he had to be the first person out of that building after it happened. And that's exactly what he did. So the match happens. They're wrestling. And then the infamous spot comes where Shawn Michaels locks the sharpshooter onto Brett. You can see the look on Brett's face that he knows something. He doesn't know quite what's about to happen, but he knows something's going on. And so when he locks him in the submission, and you can even see in the tapes, he purposely reaches back with his arm to grab onto Shawn's leg to show visually that he's not tapping out and he's trying to break out of the hold. And as he's doing this, then Vince McMahon, who's ringside doing commentary, basically wires into Earl Hebner, now's the time, call the bell, it's done. And so Earl Hebner calls for the bell and says that Bret Hart has submitted, even though Bret Hart very clearly did not tap out. Shawn Michaels is now the world champion for the third time. Bret is furious, 
spits on McMahon's face, starts throwing equipment around, and is standing in the ring, is drawing the letters WCW in the air with his finger to signify, I'm going over there. Yeah. Screw you, Vince. And then once everyone's backstage, after Earl Hebner has already immediately left the building before anyone realizes what happened. Because from his account, he says that the second the bell rang, he got out of the ring and ran to the car because he knew Brett was going to come after him. Yeah. So he got out of there. Brett and Vince are arguing backstage. At one point, uh, Brett punches Vince in the face. And I recently heard a different version of the story. But what I had heard was Vince went into hiding also. Vince locked himself in his office. Yes. Undertaker came up and said, you got to man up. You got to go talk to him about this. Vince goes to Bret Hart and says, hey, let's talk about this. And we know a lot of the stuff right now. Because at the time, there was a documentary being filmed about Bret Hart. Yes. And so he's mic'd up. The cameras aren't in there, but there are camera crews outside of the WWE stuff capturing all that stuff. There's audio being captured. Vince wants to talk to him about it. Bret says, I'm going to take a shower. If you're still out here, I'm going to punch you in the face. So he goes to take a shower. And I don't know if Vince knew at that time what he had done was wrong. I don't know if he knew at that moment I have forever changed wrestling, and I don't know if it's for the better or for the worse. And he waited. And when Brett came out, Brett saw him, punched him in the the face, face. knocked him out. Now, I've heard two stories now. So I've heard that's the simple one. It was just them two. Brett punched him in the face. And I've also heard recently, and I forget where it came from, that there were several other guys there trying to hold him back. Brett was able to launch himself up and over and punch McMahon in this moment. And knocked him out still, which I think is almost a little bit more impressive that you can fly that fist through 10 people (laughs) and nail him in the face. And then there's footage of McMahon coming out of the room with a bloodied nose, bloody nose, clearly dazed. Like, you know, if you've ever seen a boxing match or or UFC match, but it's clearly a person who just had had their bell rung. Yes. Walking out. And then Bret Hart's done the WWF. And he's gone and within weeks shows up on WCW and unfortunately. Fortunately, going to WCW ended up being one of the biggest mistakes Bret Hart could have made because it ultimately led to his career-ending injury at the hands of Goldberg, who I hate. He, I mean, Goldberg is notoriously dangerous. Notorious for being reckless, too stiff in the ring. He's injured several people prior to this. Including, he's a... And since then, he's also injured himself. He's so dangerous, he's injured himself he's a, yes. before the match started. Brett, I mean, by the end of his WCW run, even though there wasn't a whole lot about his run that was super memorable and lasting, he finished it out a two-time WCW world champion, four-time WCW United States champion, and coincidentally enough, a tag run with Goldberg. <laughs> But prior to their what ended up being Bret Hart's very last match, it's Bret Hart versus Goldberg. And backstage, Goldberg's already has this reputation of being too rough with guys and being reckless in the ring. And Bret Hart specifically says the words to Goldberg, please don't hurt me. So what does Goldberg do? He thinks, hey, Shawn Michaels and those super kicks look pretty cool. I can do one. Super kicks Bret Hart so hard in the head that he's so horribly concussed he has to retire from professional wrestling entirely, ending this legend's career. It is heartbreaking and kind of a bizarre parallel to that. So that was in 2000 when he sustained when he sustained his injury. Yes, because this was shortly after. I will say this, the best thing Bret Hart ever did in WCW during his little feud with Goldberg is he comes out there, and he's not in his ring gear, he's in just regular clothes, like jacket, t-shirt, shorts. And he's trying to egg on Goldberg into hitting Goldberg's signature spear on him. And so he finally does, he hits the spear, Brett goes down, but then Goldberg is clutching his head, and he's in so much pain, and then Brett just gets up, takes off his shirt, and reveals this iron bulletproof vest that he's wearing <laughs> underneath and i think that is one of the greatest things ever wcw is goofy wcw is so goofy but at the same time so he's he's done 2000 around this time Shawn michaels had gotten injured a year after the screw job 98 he got injured yes so sean 
even during the screw job and especially from that up to when he was forced to at this point it's really was just a hiatus but at the time he was retiring from professional wrestling because his back was hurting too much he had too many back injuries that he had sustained over the course of his career yeah 98 during a casket match with undertaker he had but two herniated discs and a crushed one as well like that was that was the straw that no pun intended broke the camel's back broke the heartbreak kid's back (laughs) But then 2002 rolls around and we have fully clean and off of drugs and alcohol, born again Shawn Michaels returning to feud with his former Click stable mate member and best friend Triple H. And from that point on, that run of 2002 to 2010 against The Undertaker at WrestleMania, that run is what really solidified and cemented Shawn Michaels as one of the greatest of all time. It was a renaissance for him. It really was. I know some people don't put a lot of stock in it. Pro Wrestling Illustrated, for six years, gave Shawn Michaels Match of the Year. 2004, uh, 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010. You're back for two years. Were the 09 and 010 ones both the Undertaker matches? Undertaker, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the Undertaker at WrestleMania, Undertaker at WrestleMania. You come back after what you thought was a career-ending injury. You've started a wrestling school at this point. You've tried to stay away from it. You've done a little commentary here and there, but you're not wrestling. You finally get the chance, like, you know what? I'm good enough. I can come back. Within two years, you're back at the point where you are at the top of your game to the point where millions or thousands of people have voted for your match for six years years straight as the best match of the year like that is astonishing to have that kind of run i don't know if there's any other wrestler that has ever had that kind of run six consecutive matches of the year to come from a career ending injury come at that level and is that astonishing. consistently good too yeah i mean at that point i mean he he was much older yeah you know 2004 he was, at that point, 40 years old. Yeah. Like, like and, 39, 40 years old. And he was working a bit more of a restricted schedule. He was working part-time. Around that time, Vince would want to put belts on Sean, and Sean would say no just because you have a belt. That means you're on TV more. That means you're on more shows, unless your name's Brock Lesnar. Then that doesn't apply to you. Because right. <laughs> by the end of Sean's career, three-time WWF champion, one-time World Heavyweight champion, which he won the first ever Elimination Chamber match to win that belt from Triple H, three-time Intercontinental champion, former European champion, as well as the only man to ever hold the WWF and European Championship at the same time. Two-time Royal Rumble winner, back-to-back. And... One of two men to do it from the number one position. Mm -hmm. The other one being Chris Benoit. And a five-time tag team champion. No, six-time, sorry, because two with Triple H. No, one with Triple H, two with Diesel, one with John Cena, and one with Stone Cold Steve Austin. Was also the first Grand Slam champion. He was the first ever WWF slash WWE Grand Slam champion, which means holding the world title. Typically, there's two secondary titles, so the Intercontinental and the European championship at the time and having a tag team championship run as well it's one of those things you know i know for some people it's hard to separate the character from the person he had a hell of a time throughout the the 90s yes with his substance abuse and things of that nature the screw job i think will unfortunately always be against him yes and i I don't know i don't know if he knew I don't know if he was in on it. I don't know if he had a say in it. He definitely benefited from it. See, I think that whether or not he knew, I doubt Sean would have said anything because already he didn't like Bret Hart. And I doubt, especially at that time, which was around the peak of Shawn Michaels' ego running rampant backstage, I doubt that Michaels had any issue with winning the world title again, especially in the main event of a pay-per-view and beating this guy in his home turf in right. Canada. And so, you know, it's one of those things that I, I think that Shawn Michaels, I think, I think Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart are easily two of the greatest wrestlers of all time, of all time. 
hands down. They forever changed wrestling in so many ways. Both of them did. Oh, yeah. You know, and even the culmination of their feud of the Clashing of the Worlds with the Montreal Screwjob. As a result of that, that was one of the first peaks behind the curtain of wrestling. And one of the things, and we've talked about this before, one of the things that I love about wrestling, and I, and I can never decide if what I love more about wrestling is the storytelling and athleticism that is wrestling, or if I like the fact that it's this whole super secretive world that goes on, that there's a hierarchy behind the scenes. Like I love stories about wrestler's court. I yes. love stories about... Uh, the Montreal Screwjob. I love these backstage politicking situations where you don't you see the eventual results of them, but you don't see all these underlying motivators that ended up causing storylines to unfold. And with this being that first peak for a lot of people at what's going on behind the scenes, it forever started blurring the line between reality and fiction. It was the birth of the Mr. McMahon character. Yes. Which was part of the Steve Austin feud, the corporation, you know, Degeneration X was designed to be up against them, which helped give Triple H his push, and Shawn Michaels continued to write it. Well, it's like you said, the screw job ultimately is what led to Vince becoming an on-screen character in the creation of the Mr. McMahon character which then also inadvertently led to what got WWF to beat WCW, which at its core was really just Stone Cold Steve Austin, Mm -hmm. who was on the upswing they were building him up, but this third and last world title run with the WWF championship from Shawn is what kick-started Steve Austin being in the main event scene because he wins it at Survivor Series, and then by the next WrestleMania with special guest Mike Tyson in his <laughs> corner, Stone Cold Steve Austin beats Shawn Michaels and becomes WWF champion, which really kickstarted what everybody knows today as the Attitude Era, which is many would say is wrestling's peak in its prime. It fundamentally changed what wrestling was when you had a character like Stone Cold Steve Austin going up against the billionaire owner of the major wrestling organization you know that is this gimmick was this beer drinking foul mouth guy just like you and me you know all you wrestling fans kind of deal like yes it helped bring people into it they could see something relatable to it and it really catapulted wrestling i think to an all-time high Absolutely, because you have Stone Cold Steve Austin, which is the representation of the everyman, and then you also had the creation of The Rock, who is just a tsunami of charisma. Yes, I mean, it it changed everything, you know, and I don't know if wrestling would be the same if it wasn't for Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels on, on so many levels. They both inspired and influenced so many of the new generation. Oh, yeah. Still influencing people to this day. And then what ended up being their backstage, behind-the-scenes feud, bleeding over into the real world, and fundamentally changing wrestling. If it wasn't for them, for better or for worse, we wouldn't have had the Attitude Era. We wouldn't have had PG. We wouldn't have what... I, I think is a really good time for wrestling right now. Yes. You know, I think that we are on the up and up pretty much across the board. You know, we, we are lucky to be wrestling fans at this time. It is such a fascinating story, the story of the two men, mm-hmm. and what has ended up becoming wrestling as a result of all their work. These guys, hands down, the greatest of all time, changed the industry that we all know and love today. For those of you that are just now getting into wrestling, hopefully we, we're, we're guiding some of you into wrestling now. If you like what you see, you can thank Shawn Michaels and, and Bret, Bret Hart. Hart. And I think that really kind of sums up why the Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels feud is such a pivotal and emotional and influential part of wrestling history. That without this feud, we wouldn't have wrestling today. We would have WCW still inviting Chucky and RoboCop on. (laughs) Yeah, but that's sometimes that's what we need. (laughs) I agree. So everyone, thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully you learned something new today. 
you know, if you thought this story was interesting, this is just a very short version about two of the most important influential wrestlers of all time. Please go ahead, look up their books, buy them wherever you prefer to buy books from. Shawn Michaels' book is entitled Wrestling for My Life, The Wrestling, The Reality, and The Faith of a WWE Superstar. And then Bret Hart's book, uh, his autobiography is titled Hitman, My Real Life in the Cartoon World of Wrestling. Definitely check it out. And there's a number of other secondary books out there. Uh, for example, Titan Screwed, Lost Smiles, Stunners, and Screwjobs by James Dixon. Wonderful book. Grab it wherever you can. Read into it for a little bit more of the nitty-gritty, less polished look on it. And then if you're interested in the Montreal Screwjob, uh, Vice's wonderful series, Dark Side of the Ring, did an amazing episode. An on amazing job on it. And that will go very in-depth on that one event. So... Again, we're going to provide links to all this on all of our social media. Take a look at them. Buy whatever you can. And we wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much for joining us today. So next week, we're going to be discussing Ghostbusters, the 1984 original, and Ghostbusters, the 2016 reboot. We're going to be discussing what works with each of them, what doesn't. And we're going to discuss the importance of understanding your audience and the narrative. Uh, it's going to be a fun dive. This is uh, one of my favorite movies of all time. If not, actually, it is my favorite movie of all I was time. I to say. It is. <laughs> Judging by the Ghostbuster-themed living room, it's my favorite You're movie. literally wearing a Stay Puff Marshmallow Man t-shirt right now. And I have the logo as a tattoo. Uh, <laughs> so, a little bit of a fan. So, we're going to discuss that. I think it'll be a fun time. Uh, we'll come back with some more wrestling news at that point as well, as always. So, thank you so much for your time today. I'm Bentley. And I'm Will. We'll see you next week.